Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It is a perfect time to speak to Miranda Carr. She has been wonderful uh, giving us Chinese perspective, a real synthesis of the politics, the culture, and of course, all of trade and finance with China. She is with Haiteng. Miranda, wonderful to have you with us uh, today. The president's on a modest victory lap on Mexico. He wants to extend that over to China. He's not going to be able to do it. What will be the obstruction the president has in getting a Mexico-like success out of China? Well, China is not so is more likely to stand up to any sort of what it sees as U.S. aggression um, or U.S. demands rather than rather than Mexico. Um, and you've seen a sort of increasing um, sort of withdrawal from um, the U.S. relationships mm-hmm. and sort of wanting to wanting to stand up. So I think um, you know it, it, she um, is not going to sort of capitulate right. to any cost. And so anything that the U.S. puts pressure on China to do, um, you may see it's going to be a very right. different meeting from, from December. I have all my radar up, Miranda, because everyone's telling me Hong Kong and protests are discreet and separate from the trade discussion. Are they? Yeah, I mean, the, the Hong Kong is the is about extradition, and that's a pretty much a Hong Kong-China issue, and that's been sort of bubbling away for some time. You've had a lot of these protests, um, small-scale protests before, um, but this is more about sort of whether China is going to, um, legal system is going to then basically take over take over Hong Kong, which would be a massive issue for 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 the for the, for the territory itself. Um, but separating that, I mean, the U.S. might want to get involved in that um, and and keep Hong Kong um, under under you know international jurisdiction, um, which is which is understandable, particularly from a capital market perspective. Um, but but tying that within. Um, the, the, the trade war would get into even messier territory. So um, we're hoping they're keeping those tides, uh, the, the, those two things separate. Well, Miranda, the United States weighing in, expressing grave concern over Hong Kong legislation. Um, at a sea, the U.S. Coastal Guard saying it's increased presence in the South China Sea in response to complaints from island nations. Miranda, there are some issues out there that go way beyond trade, and it just makes you think, and we've had this discussion on this program so many times, that these issues will remain no matter what happens at the G20 later this month. Is that your view too, Miranda? Well, yes. I mean, you you can get the trade... um some kind of trade agreement signed, and so maybe you don't get the 300 billion um, tariffs on the 300 billion of goods, um, and you get some kind of um, rapprochement and some kind of agreement about how they can move forward on the on the agreement that, that they've already been discussing. But what's happened over the you know the last six months is that the this idea that China has to much more go it alone. Um, it's got the technology. Um, it's, it's going to have to rely on its own technologies. It's already setting up you know sort of its own systems on you know, things like capital markets, even on the legal system as well, trying to do an international international court of arbitration um, being set up in Xi'an. So this is China setting up instead of coming to be part of the international community, it's creating an alternative um, to, 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 to the US-centric um, system. And that's going to continue, and, and that's the process which has really been forced um, into the open 
by what's happening in the trade war. Let's talk about the immediate policy setting in China and the FX rate more specifically. There were some people that believed that perhaps the Chinese would tolerate a Chinese currency that would begin to weaken past, say, 7 per dollar. The PBOC overnight sending its reference rate a lot stronger, sending the fixing a lot stronger, Miranda. Is this a temporary issue ahead of the G20 to stabilise the currency? How do you frame some of the action that we're seeing at the currency market right now? Well, I think the G20 is a factor um, in in terms of yes, trying not to um, have that as an issue in 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 the talks. But, but an interesting point, which um, hasn't been raised, is that there was also speculation on shore about monetary easing. Um, potential interest rate cut. They're also they're talking about scrapping the benchmark um, completely. Um, but, but potential monetary easing, whether it's an IR cut or, or, or an RR cut, and that's always seemed to be putting pressure on the currency. Yeah. So if they wanted to avoid a, a large-scale drop, which, were, you know, obviously um, the, all of the pressure on the, the currency already plus monetary easing would, would, would potentially yeah. take it past seven quite quickly, this... Today's move was more seemed to be about more defending it against the, that, that, that sort of domestic speculation. Miranda, I've got 14 more questions. We'll do this again soon. Miranda Carr with Haitong uh, this morning. It's good, John, to speak to someone who can synthesize in like where we are away from the three zip codes of Wall Street. I think there's an advantage to being outsideth. Where is Jim Paulson today? I, think I don't know where he's today. He's usually in Minneapolis. He joins us now, Luthold yeah. Whedon Capital Management CIO. Great to have you with us on the program. Jim, where are you? I am in Minneapolis. There we go. Tom, Bloomington, to be precise. Tom Keane's very happy about that. What's the view like from there looking at New York right now? <laughs> well, John, I, I, I'm uh, I'm fairly optimistic. I think that there's been such a obsession with trade war and its potential negative fallout, and there is some. There's no doubt of that. But I think we, we, you ought to consider uh, the amount of stimulus that's being brought to the party here by policy officials across the globe. Um, you know, you you can look at the yield curve as it's inverted, bad. But you can also look at it as it's, it's the entire curve has collapsed and the yield structure is a heck of a lot lower than it was a year ago, not only here but globally, which is a huge boost to future economic growth. You know, you look around and you think yields are down a lot, money supplies have been uh, uh, increased. In this country, fiscal policy juice is way up. It's uh, net deficit spending is 1% greater right now as a percent of GDP than it was the start of 2018. Cost-facing corporations are down. Commodity or materials costs are off. Unit labor cost is uh, is falling here in the last year. So they're down. Uh, capital cost yields are down. Margins may start expanding in the second half. And then you look at the consumer. It just had a huge surge in net worth and real wages are climbing. I think we're going to accelerate in the second half, surprisingly, despite trade wars. So, Jim, where are you going to be positioned to take advantage of that, given the market, the equity market, is already right up there? What are you doing? Well, I think I think that, you know, valuations, P multiples are down from where they were over the last couple of years. How much are they much down? They good, good point. How much are they down, well, Jim Paulsman? 
Well, the trailing multiple, Tom, was uh, almost 23 times in January 2018. Yeah, stupid. It's now slightly less than 19. Um, and and mm. if you look back since 1990, the current trailing multiple is, is about uh, uh, average uh, over that period of time. So there's still upside room there, I think. And, and if you look at how much we've dropped the competitive yields, it makes those valuations look even more more attractive. So when you look at the bond market right now, Jim, are you saying the Treasury market is overvalued at the moment? And where is it overvalued? Near the front end, the end of the Treasury curve that is pricing in the cuts, or further out, the 10-year? What do you think? I think, I think over the balance of this recovery, John, that the entire curve is overvalued at the moment. I, I'm not, I, I think the Fed may well cut rates. Um, but I, I think if, if we don't have a recession here, then I think ultimately the entire curve is going to go back up before this recovery ends. So I, I'd be I'd be selling my my treasuries into this, and um, not not that I wouldn't own some bonds, but I'd be looking at picking up a little cyclicality yeah. here, and 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 I'd look at picking up international markets. I'd I'd stay with some of the popular winners too, the the tech and comms. I think in the balance of this recovery, they're going to continue to. So this is really important, Jim. And you know, I was making jokes about it, but I think you've got a great perspective of what you know the C class is doing away from the financial markets that John and I are addicted to. What's the mood out there? I mean, are are corporate officers is the given senior guy at 3M in Minneapolis. Is he really distracted by all this politics, trade, Fed stuff, you know, within the corporate world? You know, that's a great question. Tom. I, they're certainly concerned. I mean, when I talk to, to companies, I pick up concern about, you know, where's all his stuff going? You know, what, what's the president Trump trying to do here? But at, at the same time, when I ask them how their business is, they, they all say it's really good. I mean, the consumers are still pretty confident. You just saw that small business optimism number jump this morning again. And at, at some point, there's going to be trade war fatigue if the economic data continues to come in fairly healthy. I think investors are going to turn back to that, and certainly the business community will. Well, Jim, we're looking for them to act on that confidence. The consumer as well. We see that in the consumer confidence numbers still elevated. The business confidence numbers still elevated. Are you seeing that confidence translate into anything, though, that we can actually see in the U.S. economy? Because as far as I can tell, retail sales are all over the shop. Business investment is trending lower now or beginning to trend lower, Jim. When do we start to see the pickup in the optimism actually translate into real economic activity? Well, I think a lot of people look at the trade wars, the culprit for slowing us down, John, and I would argue it's policy tightness. You know, we tightened dramatically last year, not only in the United States, but globally. And, and we got what you think we'd get. We got a slowdown. And oftentimes there's six to eight month lags between policy shifts and, and you're seeing it in the economy. And, you know, we didn't really start easing here or globally until about the yeah. end of last year. So we're just now entering the window where, where you would expect to see the big drop in rates, the better monetary and fiscal stimulus starting to impact economic activity. And so to see evidence of slowdown is not frightening to me. It's kind of the leg result of what we did last year. Right. When you look forward, I, I think you're going to start to see this policy juice now start to pick things up. What's the character, Jim Paulson, of this rally? Is it one big short cover off the gloom, or does it have the drift function that says real substance to it and it could work higher? Um, 
I, I think it's going to work higher. I'm gonna, and it might. I think the next big catalyst would be if people give up the imminent recession ghost, and at is the that, same time, yeah. if we if we start to see economic data improve, people are going to start raising yeah. earnings estimates again, and that's where you really get in to the yeah. potential to have one nice last run. That's a really important insight, Jim uh, Paulson Luthold. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate this morning. John Furrow and Tom Keen on oil. Jeffrey Curry uh, with us. Maybe we'll get to commodities as well here in a quick interview. Jeff, end of 2018, down 41%, then up 46%, and now down another 15%. Um, I'm starting to see the articles about cheap gasoline. Is a gallon of gas going to be cheaper this summer? Uh, based on our view, the answer to that is yes. Um, really driving the, the weaker prices at year end is going to be the new pipelines coming out of the Permian, which are going to unleash um, a lot of shale onto the global market. And in terms of thinking about the downside, market we see is going as low as $60 a barrel by year end. That's fairly okay, but, but $60. Wasn't everybody WTI at 80 like a cup of coffee ago? Which one, Jeff? WTI or Brent on $60? Uh, on on uh, Brent. But, you know, in terms of thinking wow. about the, the near-term outlook, let's go back to like February in that time period. You had <laughs> relatively um, low supplies coming out, out yeah. of the OPEC countries. Put that against um, strong, robust demand, and inventories were quite low. But so, Jeff, you, just to jump in you're basically saying that crude's going to remain flat for the rest of this year i mean we're going to have some volatility well, but you think we're, we're, where, where we are right now is basically where we finish the year despite everyone's concerns about the macro backdrop you think this is it really well in terms of thinking about the the opec policy you know our, our base case is they roll over and if you think about if i'm saudi arabia how do i balance this market either i respond to strong demand growth or a supply disruption to raise production you already have the supply disruptions in the form of Iran and Venezuela. And as you pointed out, demand okay. is relatively mixed. We had a framework of $80 a barrel. As you said, the facts changed. You and others have well, changed. If you go back to our base case, we had a downward drift in prices in okay, the second fine. half of this year. But we got a downward drift in prices. What is the action on a fundamental basis that will staunch this decline? I think a rollover on, on OPEC. The market started to rally because it assumed, okay, you're going to raise production. And fear was that Russia was going to ramp up production, pursue a market share strategy in the face of these rising shale, shale supplies. Um, if you get a rollover and there's evidence of the rollover, that's what pins this price in around $65 a barrel in 3Q. Then the pipes come online, and that's when you really unleash um, the new oil order back on the world again. So talk to me about the range that we're going to bounce around in and the ceiling and the floor and what drives the ceiling and what shapes the floor for crude in the coming six months, Jeff? Okay, if we think about um, on, on the floor, we would peg it somewhere in the you know, high $50, $60 a barrel because that's the number that OPEC's likely to defend. Um, then if we think about the, 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 the ceiling on this, you get up into that 70, 75 range. You know, we started talking about the pressure it puts on demand. The dollar is relatively strong. It starts to weaken EM growth. Um, and as we learned last year, you get up into those higher levels, the demand damage is substantial.
substantial enough to pull you back, which is why we would tend to think that a more realistic range over the third quarter, somewhere around 65. I think the real key is how does the market accommodate those pipes coming online? The inventories are building in the U.S. The producers are anticipating those new pipes coming online. Once they come online, you're going to unleash that shale on the global so market. So you're going to unleash it. Where does it go? New Orleans and then out? What it, goes, goes out it goes out through Corpus Christi in the Gulf Coast range. Uh, area and you know in terms of thinking about the potential increase you know you're running in that two million barrel per day range you can go up to closer to three million barrels per day that's a you know actually you put that with the product right. exports it makes the u.s the largest exporter in the world is there enough elasticity or mystery on the downside that we could retest thirty dollars you know forty dollars a barrel I, 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 Absolutely, but it's not going to come from um, fundamentals and a physical market. It's going to come from positioning. That's how we got down to 49. We yeah. look back at December, nothing happened. It was big swings in sentiment. How did we get the, 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 there was a fundamental shift in oil. We know that the U.S. is ramping up production anticipation of those pipes coming online. However, sentiment put a lot of downward pressure on the price of all risky assets over the course of the last month. So talk to us about the demand backdrop at the moment, Jeff. Always love to get your insight on what you see happening in China, but, just the various by, by data the way, points. everything out read? there is steady as she goes. It's boring, is the background. You don't see it showing up. There's no flashing lights anywhere, as far as you can tell. March was a little bit weak, but April yeah. bounced back. The way I like to think about it, the unconditional distribution on GDP and growth out there is large, but then you condition it on policy response, then it's very tight. You know, last night, we had the Chinese launch a local government special purpose bond for infrastructure spend. It's going to be one to two trillion RMB. That offsets any weakness in investment that's driven by the trade war. And I think that's really the key point here. Oh, we look at weakness of trade war. Hey, let's look at how they're going to respond to it. They respond to it with this big infrastructure investment. Net, it's pretty boring. Should John Tucker get rid of the Hummer H2? I mean, is it gallon? Hey, I think he. I think he's going to get be you know cheap uh, at the pump over the summer months. But there you go, John. You know, cruising the New hey. Jersey Shore. You know, start yeah. to towing my boat with it. You could. You the know, Grand Bay's forty-eight. Yeah. I love the Grand. Get out there with your boat. He as had well. the forty-two, and he just stepped up to the forty-eight. So that's, Ooh. You know, that's cute. They have tacked guess. on uh, yeah. significant taxes in my home <clears throat> state for road improvements. So you bought a boat? <laughs> Quick, copper. Copper. Um, I'm long right now, and we think it can go up to 7,000. I think the key there really is getting, a, get, you know, if we look at the, the response to the trade war, the trade war has created a lot of weak sentiment for metals more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this morning you're up 5% in iron ore off of this new bond issuance around infrastructure yeah. spend. Um, the bottom line is the fundamentals are good. Inventories are drying. You have supply look disruptions. Um, He's talking and futures are lifting, John. Do you see how Curry does that? I love catching up it's with Jeff. It's just amazing. We went from <laughs> up 13 to up 15 futures just because Curry's jawbone and optimism here. There you go. And very importantly, a lesser oil price, which uh, gets your attention. Put it all together. It's Jeff, quite positive. Very Jeff good. Curry, Jeffrey thank Curry. you. Great. Goldman Sachs. Richard Vines joins us from uh, London. It's the top 100 restaurants, Richard. And I love the idea that the trophy's taken down on the River Loon in Lancashire, which to most of our listeners is in a Beatles song. Let's begin with a simple idea. Where is Lancashire? Well, hello, Tom. First, I have to begin with a confession that I've never been to Indiana, but I have been to Lancashire. It's in the northwest of England. About, if you went by car from Manchester, you might know it would be about an hour from Manchester. 
Okay, so Moore Hall Restaurant takes a trophy. Is this an effort by the, 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 the judges of restaurants, which is really arbitrary, to say we got to go outside London? What's the trend that gets you so far away from all the big money on big restaurants in London? Well, these awards are voted on by 150 chefs, food writers, restaurateurs around the country. So there's no kind of controlling hand saying it's got to be outside London. But this particular restaurant, Moore Hall, a young chef, Mark Birchall, I say young, he's 38. It's young to me. Mm. Young chef has really made a splash. He's doing modern British food in this beautiful 16th century house deep in the countryside. We're in five acres of ground with lakes and so on. It's such a trek to get there. You're kind of yeah. you're ready to eat. What's he do? Is it like rules up north? I mean, is it is, is traditional English food? No, it's modern British food. So things like eel with potato and lots of some forage stuff and local seasonal food. No, it's not, not traditional at all. He worked at a restaurant called Long Clume for nine years. I don't know <clears> if you know it. Another modern British chef. Yeah. And this is a very much a trend now to Fairly simple food, not lots of foams, lots of ingredients, just three or four really good ingredients. What are they doing with foam? I never understood foam. Richard Vines, where did foam Where did foam come from? Well, it actually came from El Bulli in Spain. That was the main thing. And I actually asked the chef there one time, what's with the foam? And he said, it's just one technique among others. It's a different texture, I suppose, and you can distill flavors, but... I don't think so many people are doing it now. Give us the state of London. How many people, you know, you had all these people with their biases and all that. Did London acquit themselves well in this survey? Well, London did pretty well in the awards. So although we let the first place go out of London, the next four are all London restaurants, I'm happy to say. Uh, You know, London's doing amazing. There's so many great restaurants here at the moment. Okay, can we, Paul Sweeney, we got to stop here and give a moment of, of honor to Richard Vines, because my team said to me, and they know I don't eat because I'm so busy doing everything. They said, come on, Vines is in order. Richard Vines, you were instrumental in lining up the restaurants at our Queen Victoria Street uh, building. There's four or five, six restaurants or whatever it is. And I dined at Kim's, which, I mean, I don't even like this food, Richard Vines. (laughs) And it was phenomenal. Who is A. Wong and what is Kim's? Yeah, Kim's a new restaurant by a chef called Andrew Wong, and I'm happy to say he's, both his London restaurants are in the top 100. So yeah. A Wong came 11th, Kim's 61. Kim's is based on Chinese roasting, and it's you've been there. It's quite an informal restaurant, just really good flavors. Prices are not crazy for London either, did you find? I don't know. Red Oak Keeper of the Amex picked it up. That's what, <laughs> that's what, that's what I know. Richard Vines, the other uh, thing I had on my recent trip to uh, uh, London was I actually, John Farrell made me try the full English breakfast and that inedible thing that's in a full English breakfast. It's like, a, you know, not the sausage bangers black, thing. Black the, pudding. What is that? Richard Vines, black. help our American audience avoid this next trip you over. You must not avoid it. It's an amazing <clears throat> thing. It's, oh. it's made from blood. It's so much flavor in oh. there. It's a kind of vegan's nightmare. But I love it. And I think you need to spend more time over here, Tom. I, where would you get a full English? I mean, I know that's not on the 100 list of restaurants, but where's well, Richard Vine's full English perfection? I'm in a very good position to help you. Hawksmoor is probably the best full English in London, and they're opening in New York later this year, so you'll be able to yeah. get your black pudding with the, without even needing to come to London. Oh.
It's grim. Uh, Richard Vines with us, folks, as we celebrate the 100 best restaurants in England and one of them up in Lancashire uh, from a John Lennon song of a few years ago. Richard Vines, I must speak of the business of restaurants. And, of course, we see Mr. Oliver, everyone listening, is a huge fan of his enthusiasm, his originality, what he brought to, like, even you can make this, etc. Let's begin with a why. Why did he have financial difficulties with his restaurants? He overexpanded. It's a very tight market, the mid-market where he is. And companies, including his, were paying far too high a price to get into the <sighs> restaurants. Then there were the local taxes were going up, and they just had very narrow margins. And when the, when the cost went up, they yeah. couldn't increase the prices, and they got stuck. And I have to say, Jamie Oliver, he's not just a, a TV personality. If you meet him, he's exactly what you see on TV. He's such a nice guy. But the restaurants just weren't very good in the end. Uh, one final question, uh, if I could. Would you please explain tipping? It, I, I literally had someone in London, Richard Vines, say to me, no, don't tip us extra because I don't get the money. I mean, <laughs> no. what do waiters and waitresses do there? I want to give them more money for their wonderful service, and I can't figure out how to do it in London. Well, there's a service charge on almost all bills in the UK. So that kind of 20% tipping or whatever you do in New York is not standard here. And there's a bit of controversy over whether the waiters or the restaurant gets the tip. And one way to do it is just leave cash yeah. if, you, if you carry cash. I don't carry cash. I mean, you know, the, you know, it's Queen Elizabeth I the last time I was carrying cash. <laughs> Richard, what are they going to do seriously about allowing us to use our cards to compensate labor in restaurants. I mean, it's like they're almost anti-waiter, anti-waitress, anti-bartender. Not that I'm ever at bars, but you know. <laughs> well, we wouldn't go to bars, would we? It varies from restaurant to restaurant. The way to go, I think, is to ask the server, do you get the tip? But Hawksmoor, which we were talking about, has a very good record of looking after staff, and the staff get all the okay. money. So you have to go to Hawksmoor. Next probably. time I'm in London, Richard Vines and I, I will go. Paul Sweeney, I promise I'll try this Give it another pudding, go. <laughs> go, whatever. Richard Vines, go away. Uh, at Queen Victoria Street, Richard Vines uh, looking at the 100 best restaurants and a substantial drive north of Manchester in Lancashire in a 16th century stone building is the best food in England. Leonid Brzezinski joins us right now with Bloomberg Opinion. Not a bad day, Leonid, when the President of the United States retweets your piece. How did that happen? Uh, well, they say his Twitter power is fading, so I, I'm not even getting a, a huge readership bump from uh, that yeah. tweet, but thank you. Uh, in, I mean, in any case, I, I think uh the the point that president trump made about the euro is incorrect and and really? it was not in the column <laughs> yeah uh, let's point that out very seriously folks the president's uh, foreign exchange strategy we made a joke of that earlier leonid is decidedly not from mr brzezinski's <laughs> column to be official here leonid this is important can you state that a too strong dollar has nothing to do with it venice is going to sink into the adriatic if any more tourists show up uh yes that is exactly what i'm trying to say the in the last five years the euro has been pretty stable against the dollar 
Um, and we've still seen a, a huge tourist boom here in Europe uh, with uh, people mostly coming from uh, more people mostly coming from China and other Asian countries. And also there's a lot of internal tourism in the European Union. It's not the Americans um, you know, coming in droves because of a strong dollar. So the you know the reasons for the tourist boom here are different. Uh, the airline market liberalization, uh, the growing middle class in China. Uh, there's a lot of factors, and the euro is not really among them. So, Leonid, it's a very interesting piece uh, that you wrote. Just wondering, what are some of the? I mean, net net. I mean, tourism is it getting to be a net negative for some of these countries or some of these cities? Were they? Is there any movement to try to curb it to some degree or manage it a little bit, a little bit better? Uh, yes, there's a, um, there was a, a major EU uh, European Union report on over tourism last year that singled out uh, 108 cities around the world or places, destinations around the world that suffer from over tourism, and 41 of these are in Europe. Europe takes about a third of the entire world. Uh, global tourist flow. Uh, and so these 41 places um, really don't have the infrastructure or sometimes even the physical space to deal with the crowds that they're attracting. And yes, they're trying to, you know, do things to spread people out more evenly throughout the year, to market to people who will stay longer and not just come on a cruise, disembark and spend a day. Um, and sometimes they're, you know, actually trying to get people to pay to um, uh, enter some of these landmark areas that are overcrowded. Um, well, where does and, that stand? I mean, I mean, the last time I was in Venice, I didn't even bother going to the Doge's Palace. The lines were so long. And I was there, John Tucker, there was snow. You know, icebergs in the you know the harbor where the where the boat just crashed. This is Venice, Italy. <clears throat> this is Venice, okay. Italy. You know, I this got to go. Yeah. It was like a weekend Venice over is, and back. Venice is probably the worst of, uh, or, you know, sees the worst. Of so the what are they going to do? What What uh, does Venice do besides a paltry tax raise they did earlier this year? They're, uh, I think they're not doing enough, um, and it's it's just hard for them. You know, a city with a population of 50,000, just think about it, 50,000 that attracts like 20 million tourists okay, a year. Okay, so come on, just like you said, you charge an admittance fee. It's like Disneyland. You charge $142, 400 bucks per family, and, you know, you go over that little restaurant behind the Metropole, you go over there to get, you know, you get your little meal. Uh, well, that's that's sort of what Bhutan, you know, the Kingdom of Bhutan uh, in the Himalayas is doing. Yeah. They they have a tourist tax of two hundred dollars a day, and obviously, yeah, Venice could do that as well. But you know, that would certainly generate uh, a lot of bad press in terms of you know it's pushing out the poorer people and just opening up for the rich, which is not you know it's a not it's not good optics. Uh, and it's certainly not um, the message that Italy as a whole wants to send out. So I think the only reason, you know, the only way for them to, you know, to fight yeah. 
this overabundance <clears throat> of, of tourists is to uh, make it more expensive to fly there. Yeah. Uh, and, and John Tucker, when you were in Bhutan, you went from Futashaling up to Timpu. Oh, you yeah. I mean, some on, great on Route 317. Too, so, yeah. I mean, it was, Can we do this for the tax? Jersey Shore, by the way, the <clears throat> tourist the tax. tax in the yes, summer? Yes, for Memorial Day to Labor Day. Keep out people like Paul. So, Leonid, you raised the, the airline issue, and I mean, I think you think about it from uh, Asia. That's where the discount airlines have really been sprouting up. So, I, you know, is it simply an airfare raise? Um, an airfare raise uh, would, I think, do a lot to, you know, get people to, you know, think more carefully about how many trips they want to take every year and you know where do they really want to go not just because it's cheap and because the tickets are available uh but because they really want to see a particular place uh i mean i i think sort of uh making it uh, more of a more of a serious investment decision yeah. uh would help yeah. but in in terms of the you know how <clears throat> you raise these prices uh I think that sort of the air, airline liberalization of the last uh, 20, 30 yeah. years uh, could be perhaps rolled yeah. back yeah. a little. And, and, and certainly, yeah. the you know, the, the absence of a tax on aviation fuel, um, it's, okay. you know, it's not good for the environment either. Lena, congratulations on the presidential uh, tweet off your good work. Mr. Brzezinski writes for Bloomberg. Opinion again, the president's tweet talking about euro valuation and particularly strong dollar was not in the Brzezinski article. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.